The proximity of Lunar New Year on Tuesday is an auspicious time to consider the wisdom that ancient Chinese philosophies might still hold for us today. And by far the most accessible introduction I've found to the diverse world of Chinese philosophies is a book titled The Path, What Chinese Philosophers Can Teach Us About the Good Life. It's by Michael Puitt and Christine Gross Lowe. Dr. Puitt is a professor of Chinese history at Harvard University, and this book is based on his course at Harvard that has become the third most popular course for Harvard undergraduates to take. That's not bad. If you're curious, the first and second most popular courses are Intro to Economics and Intro to Computer Science. I'd rather take this Chinese philosophy course, but that's just me. Your mileage may vary. Uh, Dr. Christine um, Gross-Lowe, uh, who earned a PhD from Harvard in East Asian history, has distilled Dr. Puitt's semester-long course into a 200-page book. It's really quite short and accessible. You could even read it pretty comfortably in one sitting if you had like a block of time in a morning or afternoon or evening. And if you're curious to dig more into the primary source material, a really good anthology is called Readings in Classical Chinese Philosophy. But setting these preliminaries aside, you may be asking yourself, why is this course in particular so popular that it's become the third most popular course at Harvard? The word on the street from Harvard students who have taken the course is just this sense that this class really matters, and these readings had material that we hadn't encountered in other places, and a lot of it quite fascinating worldviews and potentially transformative practices in a good way that are, again, often unfamiliar to many Westerners. As Dr. Puitt emphasizes each semester on the first day of class, he says, if you take the ideas in these texts seriously, they will change your life. Let me give you an example. Let's start with Lao Tzu. Although I will explore wisdom from a number of Chinese philosophers today, if I had to limit myself to one, my favorite is Lao Tzu, and that's spelled L-A-O-Z-I, all together. You may have seen it spelled sometimes as two words, Lao Tzu, with a, a T at the, for the beginning of the second word, and that confusion will arise regularly if you begin to uh, dive deeper into Chinese philosophy. Most of the more familiar two-word spellings that many of us grew up with are outdated ways of transliterating Chinese characters into English. It's a system called the Wade-Giles system that comes from two British men in the 19th century, and a much better system was developed in the middle of the 20th century by Chinese linguists and slowly we're becoming more familiar with that in the West. Similarly, have you ever asked yourself why Lao Tzu's most famous book was spelled T-A-O-T-E as the first two words, but you were supposed to pronounce the T's as D's? That's why this whole white jowl system is dumb and we have a much better system called pinyin, or like Bob had mentioned in the spoken meditation, that you're supposed to know that I-C-H-I-N-G is, is spelled with an I but pronounced I-Ching. Well, that's why pinyin spells it Y-I-J-I-N-G, Yi-Jing, so you just sort of see it. So the pinyin system is a little less familiar to many of us at the moment, but it is far superior in helping you pronounce it um, phonetically. 
To tell you a little more about Lao Tzu, that name's actually a common honorific. It literally means venerable or old master. It's a title. It's not a personal name. And to give you an example of how taking seriously the teachings of ancient Chinese philosophers like Lao Tzu can change a life, imagine with me that you are moving through an old growth forest filled with oak trees you know, quite a few centuries old. So this might be like 50, 70, 100 feet more are tall trees. So just imagine being in an oak forest like that. And there's nothing wrong with appreciating such striking natural beauty. But here's the transformative perspective that Chinese philosophy can bring in. If Lao Tzu were walking with you, he might say, don't forget to notice the strength of the small sapling as well. Now you could be thinking, how is a small sapling strong? Like I could take that sapling and snap it between my fingers, whereas I might need some pretty serious tools to take down an oak tree. But Lao Tzu invites us to consider a strong storm could easily break branches or even take down an oak tree that isn't able to bend, whereas that sapling, its very seeming weakness can allow it to bend over and survive a storm. That's a sort of counterintuitive approach that can allow Chinese philosophy to change your life. And don't get me wrong, there's some advantages to being that oak tree, to being strong and proud and majestic. But on the other side of the spectrum, don't miss that equally important power of a sapling who can adapt to the winds of change. And we're going to talk more about all of that. Being open to the power of the sapling over the power of the oak is related to the general kind of approach that Lao Tzu takes of a kind of less is more leadership. One of Lao Tzu's primary strategies is called Wu Wei, which literally means inaction or effortless action. More expansively, it has the connotation of appearing not to act, but in fact being very, very powerful, having kind of shaped the container in which the action that you want will naturally and organically emerge. That word Tao and Taoism, it means the way. And one passage describes that when the followers of the way, the followers of Taoists who have been kind of shaped by the Taoist master, when their achievements are completed and their tasks finish, the people will say, we're like this naturally. They'll feel like they're like that naturally. They will be like that naturally, but only because of the container that's been shaped. Instead of being a micromanaging taskmaster, Taoism challenges us to lead in such a way that others' talents and gifts and proclivities are allowed naturally, organically to emerge. Easier said than done, but perhaps you can appreciate that managing in so that sort of way could transform you, could transform those around you. And if you read more of the Tao Te Ching, you'll get a, a sense of this approach. If you're curious to read more, there's so many translations of the Tao Te Ching. Again, it's quite a short book. Dr. Puit recommends D.C. Lau's translation, spelled L-A-U. Now, although there's so much more to say about Lao Tzu and Taoism and the Tao Te Ching, I want to give you this sense of this wide diversity and variety of Chinese philosophers, or to at least begin to. As I tell my undergraduate world religion students at Frederick Community College, there is never just one Chinese philosophy or Chinese religion. There's always already Chinese philosophies and Chinese religions, plural. 
And as I said before, if I could introduce you only to one Chinese philosopher and one Chinese text, it would be Lao Tzu and it would be the Tao Te Ching. Uh, but if I had to choose two, as Bob sort of began referring to in his book in meditation, the second would be Confucius, and it would be his book, The Analects. Uh, in Pinyin, you'll sometimes see Confucius referred to as Kongzi, or Master Kong. He's about two decades older than Lao Tzu. They're roughly contemporaneous in the 6th century uh, BCE. Confucius or Kongzi has sometimes developed a bad reputation as a kind of rigid traditionalist. Bob spoke a little bit about that in the spoken meditation, and there's some truth to that, and there's also ways in which that aspect of Confucius has been emphasized by authoritarians in ways that don't fully capture Confucius. Because if you read him closely, you'll see that he was actually all about helping people create positive change in their life, not just staying the same. As with Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching, uh, if you look at the Analects, again, D.C. Lao's version is another good place to start. I'll give you some examples of how that could help change your life. Western philosophy tends to start with really big questions. You know, who am I? What is free will? Why is there something rather than nothing? Is experience, you know, objective? What is morality? Confucian philosophy says, ah, just set aside all that. And it wants you to focus on these really minute details. If you read the Analects, you'll see stuff like how to sit properly, how to basically things like saying please and thank you, these, these, these manners and habits that can, can shape our lives. That, that, that's what, how he recommends making change, kind of a, a snowball approach. It starts small and then builds over time. For Confucius, if you want to become a person that exercises, you have to develop a ritual of exercising. What is the time? What is the place? Even if you start with just a minute, kind of an atomic habit, and, and build from there. Or if you want to be a person who paints more, you want a person who reads more, we'll start with reading a page a day at a certain time. Build a ritual, he would say, and strengthen that habit over time. For Confucius, you're much less likely to change by just thinking about things, like a Western armchair philosopher, and much more likely to change by acting your ways into new ways of being in the world. Speaking of change, let me also make a connection from Confucius back to that metaphor we were exploring previously of the metaphor of the oak and the sapling with Lao Tzu. I don't want your takeaway from Chinese philosophy to think that it falsely equates old age with fragility, because really the opposite can be the case. Uh, often uh, elders were revered in Chinese philosophy. So what they're looking for is a wise elder who maintains an openness to growth and freshness and new ways of thinking. Think about if you've ever seen a parent who was really struggling with a child or a teenager but the grandparent was able to bring this kind of softness and compassion that got through to them. That's the kind of approach that can sometimes uh, work. And we can see this in Confucius's own words. He said, at age 15, I set my intention upon studying. So as a teenager, Confucius was like, let me read as much as possible. He said, at 30, I established myself in society. I was caring about my reputation. I was building you know, uh, my resume. At 40, I freed myself of delusions. That, that happens in midlife, like the things I used to think mattered. At 50, I understood the mandates of heaven, kind of really understanding how reality, how this world works. At 60, I could finally hear with clarity what was really being said, what was really going on. And at 70, this is the important part, 
what my heart desired and what was right came into alignment. That alignment between what I truly desire and what was right came into alignment. That sounds like quite an aspirational way to live into the final chapter of one's life, seeking to cultivate an alignment between the desires of our heart and what is truly right. As for what happens after we die, Confucius used to tell his disciples, you don't yet understand life. How would you hope to understand death? So Confucius would say, start with what's right in front of us. We have enough to deal with here, with living well on this earth and with one another. After Confucius himself, if I had to say, you know, what would be the next um, Confucian philosopher to introduce you to, it would be Mencius. Uh, sometimes called the Second Sage. He was born about a century after Confucius and died, and after Confucius died, and extended Confucius's thought in some interesting ways. In particular, I appreciate Mencius's forthrightness about just how capricious life can be. I think this pandemic has given us a sense of how the rug can just get pulled out from under us. And many of us have also had various train wreck experiences in our life, so to speak. Despite our best intentions and plans, life can change suddenly, unpredictably, unaccountably, both for better and for worse. For Mencius, when life pulls the rug out from under us, all we can do is take the next step of responding as heartfully, as mindfully, even as bodyfully as we can in that moment, and then in the moment after that. Because we just don't know, in the short run, what the unforeseen opportunities that might open up for us, even from the terrible things, the things we would never choose, the things that we deeply wish were otherwise, but that nevertheless have happened to us. And I really want you to not hear this in some sort of simplistic, toxic, optimistically, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. It's, it's more profound than that. For Chinese philosophy, it's much more about cultivating a sense that we just are part of this larger reality, this larger matrix, this larger interdependent web of all existence, as our UU Seventh Principle calls it. And sometimes strands on that web shift and shake, and, uh, and there are profound reverberations that, with implications for each of us, good and bad, far beyond, or both good and bad, far beyond what any of us can individually control. Let me give you two ways of thinking about it. First, visual, and then a story. Um, picture in your mind the yin-yang symbol, so that, that black and white spinning circle with a wave of black with a white dot and a wave of, black, of white with a black dot swirling together. What that yin-yang symbol symbolizes is that you know, continuing change and that something bad can have a seed of good in it and vice versa. To give just one example from the pandemic, it's been a terrible experience on so many levels, but there are also results like this widespread adoption of live streaming that's connecting us right now and uh, video conferencing technology that is really interesting, that was available before, but that had, and now it's everywhere and can allow much more accessibility to people who can't always get out and about at various times or for various reasons. Here's how chapter 58 of the Tao Te Ching describes it as a kind of verbal representation of that yin-yang symbol. It is upon bad luck that good luck depends, and it is upon good luck that bad luck depends, and who knows where it will end, this oscillation and mixing up between the two. 
This view is even better exemplified in my favorite story from Chinese philosophy. Here's how it goes. There was an old man at a frontier fort in the north who actually understood Taoism, that inexpressible way. One day he lost his horse, which had wandered into the lands of the Hugh tribesmen. His neighbors came to condole with him, and the man said, How do you know that it was bad luck that I lost my horse? Because as it turns out, in a few months, the horse actually returned. The man got back not just his horse, but many other horses had come with it from those Hugh tribesmen. And the people congratulated them. This is so wonderful. Your one horse that was lost has been found, and now you have all these horses. And the old man said, how do you know that it is good luck that my horse has come back and brought all these other horses? You thought that my horse leaving was bad luck. But he did become very prosperous with so many horses. But then one day, his son broke his leg riding. And again, all the people came to condole with him and say, oh, we're so sorry. It's such terrible luck that your son broke his leg riding. And he says, how do you know that it is bad luck? And indeed, one day those huge tribesmen from the frontier fort came looking for their horses, and all the healthy young men fought with arrows to defend this village, and 90% of them, nine-tenths of them, were killed. But because the son had a broken leg, he was not able to fight, and he was one of the 10% that survived. Therefore, good luck changes into bad, and bad luck into good, and it cannot be known where their altering ends. Perhaps that story gives you a sense that, again, it's about something much more complicated than this simplistic silver lining in every cloud. It's about a much more general openness, a genuine not knowing, that we truly don't know how the world might shift around us in ways that can reframe what previously seemed to be unalloyed good or unalloyed bad. Reality is just quite a bit messier and more mixed up and ever-flowing and in this relational process than all of that. And hopefully that can liberate us to simply act as best we can in each moment with as much mindfulness and heartfulness and bodyfulness as we can muster. To give you one other brief example from Mingxus, he would say, it's really not about this Western way of sometimes seeing things of, I can become everything, instead, anything I want. He'd say, that's just not really true. It's more saying, given this current confluence of causes and conditions, what wants to emerge? What untapped potential is within me or in this interaction with this person right in front of me? He would say, it's not I can become anything, because that's really not true. We can't just become anything we want. He would say it's more an approach of, I don't yet know what I can become. Can you sense any truth in that for you this morning? That I don't yet know what I can become. All, that there's all, some untapped potential, some acorns within me that might one day grow into a sapling and an oak tree in areas heretofore undeveloped within me and those around me. So if we had more time, I'd love to share more with you about qi. You know, sometimes you hear about this in, in qigong or in tai chi, this cultivating of energy and breath practices that are incredibly central to Chinese philosophy, or to tell you about other Chinese philosophers like Zhuang Zhi's uh, idea of right spontaneity, that not all spontaneity is good, but if we get really skilled, we can have right spontaneity. He's, you know, so if you knew, if you know one Taoist philosopher, know Lao Tzu. If you know two, know Zhuangzi. 
Or uh, after Confucius and, and, and Mingxus, if you were to know a third um, Confucian philosopher, it would be um, Zhang Juzi. But the larger point is to get a sense of the deep well of ancient Chinese philosophy that is there for us to explore and the way that it can really challenge us to invert our worldview, to have a figure ground shift of, yes, oak trees, good and important, but don't forget about the sapling, the strength of the sapling as well in a more counterintuitive way. For now, as you continue to reflect, is there any piece of this ancient Chinese philosophy that we've been exploring that might inform or direct your life, rituals you may want to cultivate and help shape that might snowball over time? Let us listen to our musical response that celebrates the wisdom that flows from age to age and throughout the world's religions. It sounds along the ages. <laughs> 